Now please take your Bibles and find your way to Paul's letter to the Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to, Lord willing, be in uh, Ephesians chapter 2 this week and next week. Uh, Next week looking at uh, the last part of it. If you are a guest with us today, we welcome you. My name is Sean. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, we are glad that you found your way together with us and hope that the truths we've sung together already have ministered uh, encouragement to your heart. Those are gospel truths that we've sung. uh, Truths none of us could make up on our own. um, To be loved and to be forgiven and to receive God's mercy in such lavish, generous ways. Um, That's nothing that we have done on our own. We've not merited it or earned it. And we are together this morning to worship a God who delights to do that for sinners like us. Uh, We're a church family. And like every other family, sometimes families go through tough things together. Over the past three months, our family's been through some tough times. And it's safe to say that probably few of us have been exempt from feeling pain or frustration or sorrow as we've walked through the process of considering a candidate and a possible merger and then uh, that being discontinued. Sometimes family members hurt each other and misunderstand each other. Sometimes we disappoint each other, we frustrate each other. However words you want to use for that, we quote-unquote sin against each other in that kind of general way. So when that happens, how do we move forward as a church family? Some of you feel worn out today and wonder what it's going to look like to move forward together as a church family. Some are faced with the sad new reality of when coming to church doesn't feel as good as it used to feels hard, feels tough, painful. And you're wrestling with this new reality of what to do when the reminders of that we live in a sin-cursed world aren't just out there. Those reminders aren't just out there, but those reminders are right here within us. Some are hurt and might not know how to look past that pain. Pain caused by others in this church family, pain caused by the process that unfolded in real time together, Maybe pain caused by the way you perceive the words and decisions of the elder team in this process. So what are we to do? Well, the good news is God has spoken. Friends, I just just want to encourage us with that simple, obvious reality. I know this is not new for any of you who who are members here at Highlands. God has spoken. And God's church has gone through the ages of turmoil and trauma and challenges Christ Church has had internal struggles and issues in the past and we're not anything like, we're, we're, we're just the same. But I want to encourage us to know that God has spoken. And so what we have before us this morning is, is a wonderful opportunity to look into God's word together and let our faith be nourished. Let our hearts and minds be challenged. Let God teach us from his word. And so, this morning, how are we to carry on in God's mission as his redeemed people when the bite and sting of the curse of sin is not just felt out there, but in here, within us? And where we're headed this morning is, I believe, the pathway forward for reconciliation, for renewed joy in the Lord, and restored fellowship with each other. It's it's probably going to be so simple, it might offend you. It's Christian love. Now, I know some of you might be, I'm assuming that, might be inwardly objecting. Like, that is oversimplifying the issues. That is kind of a cliche, like Christianese type of 
response. But before you just jettison this whole idea in your mind right now, I'd like us to please keep an open mind and let God's Word surprise us, correct us, and encourage us and teach us. The biblical proof that I have for why I believe the pathway forward for reconciliation is Christian love is found in what the Apostle Peter wrote to suffering Christians in his day in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7-9. through 9. I'll read it aloud. I think it will be on screen for you. He says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. That's where we are headed this morning. We're going to get there in the conclusion. Okay, so hang with me. We're specifically going to be looking at verse 8 and letting that really kind of be pressed into the nooks and crannies of our life and our thinking, our, our feeling. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. So to help us appreciate and take those words to heart, I want to help us think a little bit more about biblical love. Because it is not, uh, biblical love is not the way our minds naturally think about love. Two weeks ago, I read a portion of Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 13. Many of you are familiar with that passage. It's often used as scripture readings at weddings and other kind of sentimental things like that. But if you remember, uh, the Apostle Paul is writing to a church that is a mess. They have divisions, they have factions, they have fighting, they're taking each other to court, they're having legal battles, uh, they have this false sense of spirituality, um, they are arguing and debating over what it looks like to live the faith in current cultural context, like what are we going to do with meat offered to idols? There were arguments and debates going on about spiritual giftedness and who has the better gifts and who has the best gifts and they were abusing the Lord's Supper. They were using it as a way to really push the haves and have-nots and it was being used not to draw the church family together but was actually being abused in causing divisions even more. It was a mess. And in the end of 1 Corinthians 12, the Apostle Paul has been writing and correcting them with straightforward, in some ways, stern language. He says, I want to speak to you as spiritual, but I can't because you're fleshly. And he says direct things like that to them. And then at the end of chapter 12, he says, now I'm going to show you a more excellent way. And that's when he starts describing then Christian love in 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13 is a knockout punch to a factious divisive spirit within a church. And so I'll read this aloud again, 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7. He says, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Anytime we read a passage like that, it boggles our mind, doesn't it? I mean, this is, this is what all of us want to experience in life. This is what everyone is longing for and hungering for to experience, to be loved like this. And yet it's so risky, isn't it? Because to be loved like this means you're really opening yourself up for all sorts of potential problems, risks. To, we all want to be fully known 
and fully loved. And that's the challenge we have as we relate to one another, even as we try to understand our relationship with God, is can I be fully known and yet be fully loved? And this is why we try to pretend and why we're defensive and why we excuse and why we overlook and why we get frustrated. And so it is convicting, isn't it, to read through a passage like that? It's convicting to my heart. How often am I not love when I'm irritable or resentful? These are tough questions to give honest answers to. And as we look through this idea of Christian love, we might be saying, well, it looks like a good idea. I'd love to experience that, but it isn't really possible. It's not really feasible. And yet, we're not really offered that option in the Scriptures. God's Word doesn't let us just kind of push that aside and say, well, we tried, oh well. You know, we'll just get along with the way we are, God. Because earlier, before he wrote about that, in the first three verses, the uh, the Apostle Paul establishes the essential and indispensable requirement for love in God's people. He says this, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, we kind of just brushed past that, but some of you have had aunts and uncles or grandparents give your kids Christmas presents or birthday presents that you could classify as noisy gongs or clanging cymbals. They usually have batteries, right? Put batteries in them, and anytime you bump them or move them or twist them or toss them, they make noise and play sounds. And, you know, it's cute. I remember our family, when our kids were little people, we had this this uh, tickle, tickle me Elmo thing. Do you remember this tickle me Elmo thing? If you don't, God bless you. You don't have those, those that sorrow. But it was this little red tickle me Elmo, and you would tickle it, and it would laugh and roll around. And, and that was cute for like the first five times. But you know, children are amused by the same thing over and over. And they will do it over and over. And it's like, it is grating and obnoxious and annoying. And finally, you just try to hide the toy or yank the batteries out. So do we understand then the force of what Paul is saying here? The massive contrast between, listen, if we were so blessed to actually speak with angelic tongues, like any of us would know what that is, right? But if we don't have love, we are like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. This idea of the, 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 the utterance of angels kind of being this symphonic orchestra of beauty, and yet what actually is happening is, the opposite. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am, we looked at this last week, I am nothing, or two weeks ago, I am nothing. That's not how we think about life, is it? We like to think we're something. Look what I've done, look what I've accomplished, look how I've lived, look at my faithfulness, look at my actions, look at my attitudes, look at my sacrifices. And yet we could have all of that, but if we have not love, God's estimation is you have nothing. You are nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Which means that as a church, if we had the best outreach strategy and we're engaged in regular outreach efforts, sacrificially giving of our time and efforts in those works, but if we did not have love, in God's eyes we're nothing and we gain nothing. Or if it means if we had the best children's ministry, the most exciting youth ministry, a busy adult ministry, but if we did not have love, we're nothing. We gain nothing. And to tie this in with where we're headed today in the passage I read from 1 Peter chapter 4, 
if we don't have love, if we will not let love cover a multitude of sins, then whatever we'd like to think about ourselves, God says we are nothing. We have gained nothing. Another thing to think through, which we're not going to do this morning, I'll just mention it maybe for your own pursuit this week, but in the book of Revelation, God writes to the church in Ephesus and he commends them and then he critiques them and he critiques he commends them for how they've stood for truth and he critiques them because there's an issue of love in that church family. So now let's look at Ephesians 2. My hope is that by looking in Ephesians 2, it'll teach us more about love to remind us about the rivers of living water of God that flow in and through us as his people and there's rivers of living water of love and I pray that then we'll be able to live out this radical, out-of-this-world kind of love toward each other as we move forward together. There's two universal truths, two simple truths that I want to remind us for and that must we must activate, if I can think of it that way, in our relationships with God and with one another. The first is this. The cross shows that you are a sinner. Sin is what lies behind and beneath the conflict in our world. We've got conflict everywhere, right? We've got conflict in our families. We've got conflict in our workplaces. We've got conflict on the roads, right? We've got conflict everywhere in the world. And we've been trying as a society to get rid of conflict in all sorts of various ways, and we can't seem to ever escape it, can we? We spend billions of dollars as nations on trying to remove this conflict, and we cannot escape it. But if you notice in Ephesians 2, verse 1, it says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins. That's our problem as a human race, sin. We once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, which was us, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh. And if you remember in Galatians 2, a couple weeks ago, we looked at the, we glanced through the fruit or the works of the flesh, the passions of the flesh. What does that look like? You can read in Galatians 5 what the works of the flesh are, what these passions of the flesh lead us to do. And so much of it is relational trauma and destruction and frustration. We carried out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So what happens beneath and behind all the conflicts that we have as humans is we all think that we're right. Well, or at least we're more right than others. Our natural response is that problems are caused by someone else. You ever been late somewhere and you blamed it on traffic and the red lights and everything else, but secretly you know in your heart that if I had just left a little bit earlier, then I probably wouldn't have been late. But we, we usually deflect. We might not be so bold to say it verbally, but often in our hearts we think, I think, that's not my fault. I didn't want this fight. He's the problem. She's the problem. It's not my fault. And whenever we say that, whenever we say there's no problem with me, I'm not the problem, that's the problem. That's true for you and that's true for me. And so if at this moment you're thinking that someone else in this church family really needs to listen up to Ephesians 2 and this issue, <laughs> watch out, right? Because we need to put aside those notions and say, God, speak to my heart. Ephesians 2, in its own way, do you realize how insulting the Christian gospel is? Do you realize how insulting it is? The Christian gospel says, you are bad. You're horribly bad. You are worse than you can even imagine. You're a sinner. I mean, just think of how crazy we are as Christians to think that we are able to see the world change by telling them this insulting truth. And I know we understand that there's more to this, but our modern age would like to think us that we're basically good. Give us the right external, external um, 
help and give us the right education and give us the right external factors and we'll be okay. But really, that experiment and the effort to change humanity through those efforts has been a failed experiment and proven to be ineffective over and over and over again. The Bible says that the problem is not primarily out there. The Bible says the, primarily is, the problem primarily is right in here. By the way, this is one of the unique ways that Christianity sets itself apart from every other world religion. Every other religion is saying something like this. Moral effort is enough. If you really pull yourself together and work hard, if you really try hard enough, you'll be okay. World religions will say, follow these steps, follow this process, then you'll ascend, then you'll achieve this transcendence, this accomplishment, this, and you'll be okay. And Christianity says, no, you can't. Not ever. It's impossible. That'll never work. Christianity says, you're so bad, you failed so much in every area of your life, personally and publicly and privately and relationally and socially and morally, that only the death of the Son of God himself can save you. You can't. And that's true for all of us. It's for you and for me. Which means then, in God's eyes, none of us are better or worse than anyone else. None of us are. By the way, we we forget this all the time. We drift and are thinking about other people and ourselves all the time on this. Jesus, when we forget what Jesus did for us, when we remember what Jesus did for us, it enables us to love as we ought. When we forget, we find ourselves unable to love the way the Bible calls us to this radical kind of love. So in other words, if you're having problems and trouble getting along with people, if you're having trouble despising people in your heart, it's probably because you're not glorying in the cross like you must. The cross shows that you are a sinner, but there's more. There's more, right? This is good news, right? It doesn't just leave us there. Number two, and this is the rest, the last part, the rest of Ephesians two. The cross shows that you are loved. You are a sinner, and a cross shows that you are loved. Now, here's the challenge. Our modern world and our modern religious world loves to trumpet this message of love. You're loved. You're loved. God is love. He loves you. He's for you. He's with you. He wants you to be successful. You know, it's kind of this, like God is this kind of self-help guru, all about love. But friends, if you start with God as love, we don't understand the magnificence of his love when it's not set against the backdrop of how bad and horrible we are. He loves us. Look at verses 4 through 6 of Ephesians 2. It says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Do you see how close and intimate these phrases are. God doesn't just bring us kind of into, well, you're kind of my distant acquaintance. I'll kind of put up with you being as an extra in, in the movie going on here. But no, it says, he made us alive together with Christ. He raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. These are intimate terms. Notice how radical and bizarre God's love is. It's the opposite of how we naturally approach love. Now, we wouldn't know a love like this unless God showed it to us. We wouldn't. We wouldn't even know a love like this would be possible unless God wrote himself into our story, as it were. 
and let us know who he is through the scriptures, through Christ. For instance, when we look at ugliness, when we feel mistreatment, when we endure betrayal, then our natural response is, is not, our natural response is not, man, I can't wait to be generous to him. I can't wait to sacrifice for her. Man, she hurt me so bad, I get to pour out extra mercy. This is so exciting. We don't go to bed thinking, man, I can't wait to figure out how to be generous towards him tomorrow because, man, the pain he inflicted on my heart was so bad, it's going to be... It's going to be amazing generosity. And I know I'm speaking facetiously here, but we don't respond that way. We're not God, but God did. God loved us while there was nothing good to be found in us. He poured out his love to us and seated us with him in the heavenly places when we were dead in our sins. He reached out into the cesspool of our sin and saves us from it. We didn't clean ourselves up and then say, hey, God, pick me. God made us alive when we were willfully choosing sin and death. We didn't even come one step toward him on our own. He pursues us and saves us. That's God. This is love. Okay, so we see the love of God described in Ephesians 2. Um, It's been put this way. We are more sinful than we can understand. And we are more loved than we can imagine. That's the Christian gospel. We are more sinful. We are worse. We are badder. Is that even an okay word? We are more bad than we could ever understand. And yet we are loved more than we can imagine. That's the Christian gospel. That's why we gather. This is why we sing. This is why we we praise God. So then what effect should these truths about God's love have on how then we relate to others? And to help to tease that idea out, I'm going I'm to have us consider what the Apostle John wrote. The Apostle John wrote a lot about love. You can read it for yourself in his gospel. You can read it in his letters. Some of his letters are very short. They're like one chapter. First, second John, third John, one chapter. If you ever haven't read an entire book of the Bible and you're wondering how to do that, start with second John. It's one sheet. You can say that you've read an entire book of the Bible. Then go to third John. But I searched for and found 155 verses that were penned by the Apostle John where he writes about love. And that was just where it's specifically mentioned, not the context that surrounded it that fleshes some of that out even more. One of the places that he wrote about love is in his first letter, 1 John. And there he explains how God's love radically changes our relationship with others. In 1 John 4, verse 16 He says, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. Let's just pause right there. We've come to know and believe Ephesians 2 kind of radical love. God reaching into us as sinners and rescuing us from that. There's other descriptions of God's salvation that God used with the Old Testament that are kind of gruesome. Like, well, we won't get into that. We have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. And here's a phrase that's used all over, right? God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Now, this is where the scriptures have a bit of a Yoda sounding, right? They don't sound a little bit like Yoda. When you start hearing God is love, whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Like, who's on first? Because those prepositions kind of just roll around, and we don't really understand what he's saying. But think of it. This is amazing. Whoever abides in love abides in God 
And God abides in him or her. There's this abiding. And love is, is, the, is, is the soil of this abiding. So if you're a Christian, this is true of you right now. It means that God abides in you and this is a relationship of love and you abide in God. If you've come to know and believe the love of God, God's saving love. But there's more. Look at verse 17. By this, by this understanding, knowing, believing, embracing, by this is love then perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. So what John is saying here is that when we believe God loves us, when we really embrace this reality in our souls, that the eternal creator loves us, only then will our love for others be completed. And that's the word perfected there that the Apostle John was using when he says, uh, when he says, by this is love perfected with us. The word perfected there means to bring to completion. It's insufficient. It's like having a Lego set and you're building a Lego set or putting a puzzle together and there's a piece or two missing. You ever done that with a puzzle? Puzzles really bother you, right? Legos, you might be able to hide it. Puzzles, you can't. It's just this gaping hole in the middle. When my family does puzzles, we always have to check the kids because one of them is usually hiding a piece somewhere on them so they can have the, the satisfaction of the last piece to put it in there. Our love is incomplete. There's a puzzle piece missing. What is it that completes it? It's knowing and believing God's love for us. Our abiding in him, him abiding in us in this relationship of love that he secured for us through Christ. So then, our love for others is incomplete. It's lacking. It's insufficient until we believe and embrace the love that God has for us. What this means is when you believe God's love for you, when you embrace it as it truly is, as it's talked about in Scripture, it frees you. It sets you free. It gives you a clear conscience before God. You no longer live in the terror of God's eternal judgment. Do you see how he talks about that? About so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment? I mean, you're going to stand, you're going to stand before God one day. And what's your, what's your defense going to be? As Christians, our defense is Christ. God, you've loved me. You've forgiven me. You've poured mercy upon me. You've abided in me. You've given me your indwelling presence by your Spirit. We have a clear conscience before God. We fear no condemnation, Romans 8. It's astonishing. We sang about it in In His Well with My Soul. My sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross. When you believe God's love for you, you no longer live in the terror of God's eternal judgment for sin because you know you're forgiven. Which means then you no longer have to find your place in this world by what you do or how you behave as if you're better or worse than others. It liberates us from that. We are freed from the demands of the law. And when you live in the reality of God's complete love for you, then and only then will your love for others function the way it must. So in other words, what the scriptures are teaching in so many different places with so many different authors is this, is this, this unified message that you won't be able to love others through the ups and downs of life, through the frustrations and disappointments, through the pain and wounds we will all inevitably cause each other unless you are convinced and assured you are completely loved by God, fully known and fully loved. This is why I've had us give thought to Ephesians 2 this morning. The Gospel reminds us we are all sinners. And I know intellectually we would not deny that. 
I think intellectually we would all say, of course I know I'm a sinner. I'm not pretending I'm not a sinner. But emotionally, we can relate to others forgetting that we are sinners, that I am a sinner. All of us are sinners and, the gospel reminds us, all of us are loved. Both of these truths are important and both of these truths must be activated in our thinking and in our hearts and minds as we relate to one another. So then, since in God's eyes none of us are better or worse than each other, this means that when we're wronged by one another, instead of despising each other, instead of writing one another off, we can lean into each other with a generous, out-of-this-world kind of love that really makes the world watch and scratch their head and go, I do not get that. Instead of saying, I don't need him, I don't need her in my life anymore, I don't need to put up with that. I don't need to put up with this kind of treatment. The Bible says, remember the cross. Remember the cross. He saved you. You are a sinner and you are fully loved. Remember the debt of your sin. Jesus used an analogy about a man who had an enormous debt and it was forgiven through this act of generous mercy from the one who, from, from his creditor. And he found forgiveness of this massive debt, a debt that would take a lifetime, a lifetime to repay and probably wouldn't even be paid in a lifetime. And yet the man who had been forgiven had a debt owed him, a small, insignificant amount, especially when compared to the massive amount of his debt. And he went up to the one who, who owed him and he demanded, pay me. And Jesus, you know, some of you know the story. Jesus said, that is not being forgiven. Those who have been forgiven much know. And this changes how we then relate to others. It changes our disposition towards others. The, the radical transforming love of God will have an effect. Remember that you are a sinner just like everyone else who wrongs you. Your debt of sin, your eternal condemnation was paid for and removed by Jesus just like theirs. This changes families. It changes husbands and wives' relationships. It changes relationships between parents and children. It changes relationships with people in your workplace. Maybe that haven't yet tasted and seen of God's goodness of saving love. It changes relationships within Christ's church. You've been loved and forgiven by God just like your Christian counterparts and you haven't needed any less forgiveness than anyone else. So then, because you are completely loved by God, you don't need to live in the fear of rejection. You don't need to nurse the injury you felt from someone else. When we live in the reality of these truths, we show the world what God says is true about us. And we're going to look at this next week, Lord willing, in verses 11 through 22, that he is making a new humanity. He's not just modifying us a bit. He's making a new humanity marked by love, a people who never ever could get along and enjoy unity on their own. But now, with the power of God's forgiveness and love, we can. And it's because of God, because of Christ, because of the cross that we as Christians can flourish in unity and forgiveness and tender-heartedness toward each other through the disappointments and pain that we will inevitably cause each other. So does it seem like our ability to hurt each other is greater than these truths of forgiveness and love? I think we all find ourselves sometimes thinking that. Because pain, we feel it. Does this kind of radical disposition of love seem unachievable or unrealistic? Well, take heart. Read verse 7 of Ephesians 2. He says, So that, with this result, with this intended purpose, 
in the coming ages, He, God, might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. One of the results that God brings about through His great saving acts towards sinners, radically transforming us, putting us into this new humanity, one of the results of loving sinners, people who are really, really bad like us, is to show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness. Okay, question. How rich is God? All right, this is kind of one of those questions you could ask kids in a children's class. How rich is God? You start making, making suggestions. Well, the Bible says he is immeasurably rich, verse 7. You can read it there. And by the way, he's immeasurably rich, not just in some things, but in everything, in the things that matter most, like kindness and grace. So who is the richest person in the world? I put a little web search for that, and an article dated September 6th, could have changed, right? But on September 6th, this article said that Elon Musk, at the age of 51, has a net worth of $241 billion. Kids, you need to ask your parents how to understand $241 billion. What if you got a notarized letter from Elon Musk that said, in the letter he explains that he has taken an oath by the blood of his son to spend his wealth in ways to prove to you and to show to you as much kindness as he humanly could for the rest of your life. Okay, some of you just already backed out of that illustration because it's so preposterous. But just play along here. Just pretend. What would you do with that news? How would that news change your life? Would you get excited? Would some of the problems and troubles in your life seem to eh, not be so bad? Well, let me remind you that all the combined wealth of all the richest people in the world when compared to God is like a drop of water compared to all the ocean's waters. Or to put it this way, I've heard it said this way, it's like a grain of sand compared to the Sahara Desert. (laughs) God took an oath to do just that. He took an oath that is not limited by human lifespan. He took an oath against the blood of his son. It's not limited by economic markets or geopolitical factors. The cross reminds us that we are loved. It's that big. So let's tie it all together. Now we're finally at 1 Peter 4, okay? You can turn there or I'll have it there on screen for you. 1 Peter 4. I told you we're headed here. 1 Peter 4, verse 8 and 9 says, Above all, Keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. This is the Apostle Peter quoting an Old Testament text. You can read this in Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12, where it says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Again, this is a proverbial statement. Peter quotes that when he writes to Christians in his day. And Just to help us understand a little bit of the force of what we have here, Peter is writing to Christians who are living under duress. I mean, they are persecuted. They've been scattered because there is such hostility to them as believers in Jesus, as worshipers of Jesus Christ. They are, uh, they're the oddballs. You can imagine the way that this pressure would strain relationships in the Christian community. I mean, isn't that how it works? Whenever you're under stress, whenever you're under strain, emotionally our bandwidth shrinks and we realize how limited we are. And so imagine some of the debates and arguments that must have been springing up in the Christian community that Peter is writing to as they're discussing and strategizing about how to live 
a Christian faith in a society that is hostile towards them, not just in word, but in action. Property is being seized, legal action being taken, people being thrown into prison. I mean, he writes about people that have been thrown into prison and how they stood with them. And just imagine that. Imagine some of the debates on, hey, we want to help so-and-so in prison. No way, man. I'm not getting, I'm not getting scalded by that. Well, I think we need to have a relief effort. Uh, can you imagine just the, the reality of the conflict and debates that would have inevitably sprung up? Christians hurting each other, disappointing each other, maybe feeling betrayed by each other, betrayed by each other as they try to work out how to live this Christian faith in a society that's so hostile. How can they move forward together in faith when these things are happening? How can we? And, by, and he gets here um, most of the way through his letter. You notice that there's not much left. You got, you got part of a chapter that's left in this letter and he, he tells them, Above all, he says, the end of things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Verse 7. And then verse 8. Above all, everything else that he might want them to remember and to engage and activate in their Christian life, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Peter urges his readers to show love to each other. He tells them to do this earnestly. Now, that word describes Stretching. Um, when's the last time you tried to stretch? Uh, it's painful, right? I mean, stretching is not just bending over, okay? Like you're trying to stretch your legs out or something. It's not just moving. Stretching is going to a place where it hurts. And then what do you do when you stretch? You go further. That's what a stretch is, okay? He applies that mental picture here, this earnestly, this stretching oneself out in pain, okay? He applies that to their loving one another. So when we say love, a lot of times what we'll do is we go to love where it hurts and we stop. And Peter says, I want you to go to where love hurts and then you need to go further. Stretch earnestly. Love one another. It's not a comfortable, casual, convenient love. It's painful and stretching. By the way, this is the kind of love that Jesus taught as a mark of being his child, being a child of the Most High. In Luke chapter 6, he says, If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But here's this new humanity kind of love. But love your enemies and do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Peter's teaching that love, true Christian love, the love we've looked at in Ephesians 2, it enables Christian fellowship and unity to carry on in spite of the pain and hurt and relational injury. Do you believe this? Peter wrote these words to a church that was in, a, in some way hitting a log jam of pain and hurt with each other, some way where the love was being held back, withheld. They've hurt. They've caused pain. They've whatever we fill in the blank. So therefore, there was real pain, real hurt, real wrongs. I mean, he says, let love cover a multitude of sins. This isn't just pretend. People had felt real pain, real disappointment. There was an ownership of this. 
It was affecting how they were relating. And Paul says, above all, love earnestly. This is why. Because love covers a multitude of sins. These are not my words. These are God's words. I know it sounds bizarre. It sounds radical. In verse 9, though, look at verse 9. Peter says that we should be hospitable without complaint, without grumbling. He says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Those verses are connected right together. And I believe there's there's a contextual connection here. Based on the context, when he says, love each other earnestly, let love cover sins, the pain that you felt, let love cover that. Show hospitality. I think the grumbling that he's talking about here is likely the result of the sins, quote-unquote, in verse 8. The sins, the pains that he tells them to cover with love. So when he tells them not to grumble in verse 9, I think he's referring to grumbling about people. Grumbling about what people have done, what others have said, how others have said it. Your perceived wrong, the the wrongdoing that you perceive has, has come in and entered your life and caused wounds and damages. So what kind of power then does Christian love have? You say, well, it sounds like you're diminishing the pain I felt. You're diminishing the issues that, have, that we've gone through. I am not, friends. What I'm doing is saying love is greater. I'm trying to help us have a bigger view of what God's love is. Love is a tidal wave that can crash over the sandcastle of that offense. According to the Scriptures, God's love has the power to cover over sins that, make, that would make us grumble about each other. Like we, we all are like, okay, I can let, let love cover some things, but, you know, I'm, but when our hearts are just stirred and grumbling in our souls about that offense, that's where Peter says, above all, stretch and let love cover that. Christian love says, instead of grumbling and withholding fellowship, instead of murmuring in my heart and turning away from them, I'm going to let love cover the things that I could complain and grumble about. So over the past few months, if we want to, we have enough reasons to complain and murmur and grumble about each other. That's an established fact. And I'm not diminishing that. Some feel that the elders were wrong in how we led and responded through the process and through the controversies that came up in either either what we've done or what we've said or how we've said it. Others have felt hurt in the way that church members treated the elders or how church members treated each other. What was said, what was done. Others feel neither or both or some mixture of angst about any mixture of that. So how do we move forward? Christians, I'd like to propose to us God has spoken. And 1 Peter 4, 8 is not theory. It's not theoretical. I think it is very practical. And this is a time in our church life when we must let Scripture pull us forward out of the quicksands of our own hearts, out of our own emotional objections, and let Christian love have its powerful effect. How it, let it allow us to be hospitable towards others, not just putting up with each other. Now, we, we still fall far short but to be generous toward those who have hurt you, to let love cover that pain. It enables you to give real, heartfelt fellowship and friendship, real, tender-hearted care, Ephesians, not because we even agree on what the sins are that we felt from each other over the past few months. Peter's not saying, okay, now come to common ground. He says, let love cover. There are sins you've all felt. We've all felt. Let love cover. This is amazing. 
Again, God's love is a tsunami wave that can crash over the sandcastles of our offense. God's people move forward together in our shared mission, not because we finally decide or agree on who is wrong and which ways and to what extent and when. We move forward because love covers. The Bible says here that real, authentic love and fellowship in the Christian community is based in part on the covering of many sins, a multitude. You see what Peter says there? You say, well, hey, there's one or two things, and I can put up with that. I'll cover that, but... Will we believe this? Now, clarifying, this does not mean we sweep things under the rug. It does not mean that we move forward in pig-headed wrongdoing or keep skeletons in our closets. It does mean at least this, though, that when we've done all we can, we've had conversations, we've had confrontations, we've had argumentation, we've had discussion, we cover it. We cover it. God has made us into a new humanity. A new humanity with these operating principles. So whatever side we're on, we cover it. We give it up. We we bury it as a cause of grumbling under the tsunami wave of God's love. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. And we're loved. Why am I upset with you again? What cause do I have to be angry God's forgiven me of what again? Ah, he's forgiven you? Yes. We'll let love cover. And then, and only then, I want you to glance down to verse 11. Where is all this heading? Why is it worth it? Look at 1 Peter 4.11. Only then, when, when we let love cover a multitude of sins, then together we can depend on God's grace and strive toward what Peter writes there in verse 11. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Are we willing to relinquish the ownership of the offense to extend the glory of Jesus? To show this new humanity that we are part of? To to validate the love of God, not in theory, but in practice? Will we let the love of God cover the sins? Will you let the love of God cover the sins you feel and think you've seen in others or felt from others so that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever.